the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Welcome to XR Star, your monthly podcast where we discuss all things extended reality. I'm your host, futurist Amelia Coleman. Today we are talking about XR and the future of emotion. When we talk about a technology, emotion is a word that often gets left out, but it shouldn't. Technology should enhance the human experience, and XR can expand it. Anyone who's been attacked by zombies in VR or captured Pokemon in AR or attended a concert in Fortnite knows that immersive technology provokes very real emotions. But aside from giving something a thumbs up, we haven't really had a way of measuring emotional impact until very recently, which I'll come back to in a moment. In the world of IoT, the Internet of Things, we're beginning to see our connected devices getting smarter, and this extends to XR headsets, too. As we start to incorporate machine learning and artificial intelligence into objects and devices, they get to know us better. They can begin to anticipate our preferences, needs, and behaviors, and make more personalized suggestions. The future of this is what I call the emotional intelligence of things, EOT. In this scenario, it's not one device that builds a personal profile of us, but all our connected devices sharing our data and working together. As machines become empathetic, our relationship with them will change. You may remember at CES 2020, a collaboration between Mercedes-Benz and the film director James Cameron, the Vision AVTR, or Avatar, concept car. It is modeled on animal movements and behaviors, playing on the idea that as cars become more autonomous, they will become more like traveling mates for us. The avatar expresses itself through lighting and 32 independently moving scale-like flaps. There is no steering wheel, but instead there is a control panel running through the center of the car where you place your hand and it connects you to your biometrics to the car. And maybe what's most impressive is that the car actually drives. Besides machines becoming more emotional, new technologies are providing us with the ability to understand and measure human emotions, giving us insights and opportunities we've never had before. Just as web analytics have revolutionized the way businesses optimize engagement, emotion analytics will provide new dimensions of insights, especially for XR. Today, media platforms generally gather data about us through our mobile phones and PCs, but with VR and AR headsets, they have the opportunity to see through our eyes, picking up on subtle, involuntary glances or muscle reactions. With the convergence of technologies like brain-computer interface, or BCI as we might refer to it, eye tracking, EEGs, AI, and machine learning, the depth of data that can be captured will have a significant impact on business, design, and more moving forward. 
Innerspace is a platform by Mtech Labs and innovation consultancy Parallel that aims to bring a hyper-personalized future to XR environments. With a visual approach to analyzing emotional data pertaining to personality traits, behavior, interactions, and stress responses, the platform uses sensors in head-mounted displays combined with machine learning to translate emotions into valuable data for actionable insights. To talk to us more about Innerspace and XR and the future of emotions, I am thrilled to welcome this month's guest, Matthew Fala, founding partner at Parallel. A specialist practitioner, Matthew has over 15 years of experience innovating at the intersection of design, technology, and data. Today, Matthew and Parallel help companies seize the opportunities that lie between physical and digital. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you very much for the fantastic introduction. It's great to have you here today, and I'm a big fan of your work. Um, I've known your company for a while now, and it's really a pleasure to have you on. So for those listeners who might not be familiar with you, though, wondering if we can start out um, by hearing a bit about your background and a bit more about what Parallel does and Innerspace. Sure. Um, so originally I studied as a, a graphic designer. Um, I then went on to do a, a master's course in interaction design at the Royal College of Art. And, and that's where really I started playing around with technology and exploring creative uses for it. And I, I became really interested in the idea of technology sort of as, as magic of, um, of tech that can do really unexpected things. Um, so when I finished that course, I was playing around with printed electronics using conductive inks um, and bespoke circuits to link physical media, so print, with, with digital media. Um, so things like uh, interactive packaging, posters, book covers, and, and so on. Um, it was really cool tech, but it, it wasn't quite mature enough. Um, then a, a couple of years later in 2010, I set up a, a data design agency with two other partners. And that was really based off the insight that, that data as a thing certainly wasn't going anywhere. It's growing exponentially every year. Um, and that, that people were going to need better ways to visualize and understand all of this data. Um, so our, our work at, uh, at that company was all about developing data-driven content and designing data-focused digital products. Um, with visualization really being the common thread. Um, and we were working for firms like Siemens, McKinsey, UBS, so really broad spectrum of clients. Um, that business was uh, acquired. And last year in 2020, um, I set up Parallel with, with the original partners. Um, and the insight for Parallel really is that the, the instrumentation of the world that's that we're seeing through sensors, through computer vision, is going to open up new ways to observe, to analyze, and predict the world around us and, and all the, the complex systems within it. Um, so at Parallel, we, we help our clients navigate this terrain and to develop the products that, that hopefully are going to um, end up defining it. Um, in terms of inner space, we were approached towards the end of last year by a company called MTech Labs, and 
they have this um, amazing technology that can infer the emotional responses of people to VR environments. Um, and really, they're, they're leaders in this emerging field of emotional analytics. Um, what was missing for them was an accessible way for people to be able to make sense of all of the data that came out of, of their devices, to be able to identify those actionable insights that, that everyone is looking for. So historically, they had provided an, an API to their clients, but those clients really needed to have their own dedicated data science teams to, to start getting value from the product. And MTech's ambition was to start unlocking new markets, new users with a highly visual platform um, that would help you understand where someone was in a space, what it was that they could see, what their emotional response was to, to that environment and how that person compared to, to others. Um, and the, the aim of all of that really being to be able to either recommend or to make changes to those environments, either during the design or the authoring process, or even at, at runtime, um, so that you can make it more likely that people are going to be in a desired emotional state. Fascinating. I uh, was lucky enough to be, I guess, one of the beta testers of MTech. Um, and it was it's amazing what it can do. Um, that's really fascinating. And I think it's really exciting that you guys have come together and partnered on this. And I can see that being a really good partnership. Um, so just if we could just start with the basics a little bit, just so that we're all on the same page and without getting too technical, can you explain a little bit about what emotional data is and how you gather it and how it's analyzed? Sure. Um, so whilst we believe that this combination of technologies and, and techniques is, is certainly very novel, I think that there's quite a long history of, of people trying to work out what people's emotional state might be. And essentially that all starts with biometric sensing technologies. Um, and there's quite a, a variety of, of different sensing approaches that can be used. Uh, so things like heart rate or heart rate variability, galvanic skin response, which is sort of changes in the, the level of sweat um, that can be detected on your skin, uh, brain activity using EEG, uh, eye tracking, facial expressions, either through computer vision or uh, a technique called facial electromyography. Um, and you've also got all of these other ways of inferring people's reactions by looking at their behavior. Um, and a lot of these are, are sort of more common in traditional digital analytics. So, you know, the, the simple things like dwell time or sentiment analysis and, and voice recognition. But for, for MTech labs, their, their main focus really is on the facial expression. And um, often they're, they're working at a, a level of granularity that's not visible to the naked eye. Um, so those guys have really been building on 40 years worth of research into the, the links between facial expressions and, and emotion. And they're, they're taking all of that historical research and, and data um, using their own machine learning approaches to, to now pretty accurately deduce someone's emotional state from, from all of those various signals. Um, and MTech have, have taken all this tech and, and put it into inlays for VR headsets 
um, that that incorporate all these sensors, and that allows them to uh, to understand someone's level of arousal. So that's how activated or excited they are, uh, and also their valence, which is whether their reaction is is positive or or negative. And it does this by reading the um, the minute muscles in the face. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So o- over time and, and looking at all of the, the data, they are able to detect those very slight changes in, in your facial muscles around your cheeks, your eyes, um, and, uh, and assign those to um, probabilities of, of different human emotions. Oh, it's fascinating. So, I mean, immediately I kind of think of, of this having a marketing application. So being able to understand both the conscious and unconscious reactions of, say, a campaign or product placement or messaging or something like that. Um, how, how are companies using this technology today and, uh, and how do you think they'll use it in the future? So, so I guess for, for Tech Labs to date, um, yeah, they've mostly been using their technology for either for academic research or for that kind of audience response um, use case that you mentioned. So media, advertising, gaming, content creation. Um, but I, I think if we look slightly more broadly, emotion tracking generally is being used in, um, in a, a whole load of use cases. Um, so thinking about voice recognition, um, Already today, that's used extensively in, in places like call centers. So you might start a call speaking with an automated chatbot, and then when they've determined your emotional state, you'll get routed to different operators. So you might have someone who's uh, an expert in dealing with happy customers versus uh, an operator um, more trained with dealing with people who are, are upset. Um, we're seeing voice recognition in in financial services, things like fraud detection. Um, earlier this year, there was uh, it was quite a controversial patent filing that came from Spotify, and what they're claiming to be able to do is to use speech recognition alongside background sounds to to start to understand someone's emotional state, and then use that as part of their recommendation algorithms. And there was there was actually quite a lot of kickback against Spotify when, when that came out. Um, thinking about things like eye tracking, um, already casinos are, are starting to explore um, putting eye tracking sensors in slot machines um, so they, they know when players might be getting tired, um, when it might be a good time to, to send over a server to bring free drinks or whatever. Okay. Um, a, but a, a really interesting one and probably one of the biggest use cases I, I think that's emerging recently is in automotive. So you've got this, this concept of in-cabin sensing, which is all about the vehicle understanding what the driver and the passengers are doing and, and how they're feeling. Um, so the car then can start to detect drowsiness or fatigue, whether or not the driver might be distracted, uh, understanding the mood of the, the people in the, the vehicle, perhaps adjusting their ambience in real time based on um, on their needs. And I, I think we're going to get into really interesting territory with autonomous vehicles because mm-hmm. there's, there's going to be this kind of two-way trust exchange between the vehicle and the, the passenger. Um, so do I, as the the owner of the car, do I trust what it's doing 
from the card's point of view, does it trust me? Um, what should it do to make you more comfortable? I, I think there's this kind of really interesting interplay between the car that can sense and, and the people within it. Absolutely. I think as um, soon as... Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think as soon as machines can start to sense us, our relationships with them are going to change. Yeah, totally. Um, and and in that, that automotive space, we, we were looking at a, a project a couple of years ago for one of the German manufacturers about what does it mean when you've got this sentient vehicle, right? It's aware mm. of out, what's going on outside it, what's going on inside it. And that's going to have um, a big impact, I think, on safety, on entertainment, navigation, um, even sort of the, the ability of machines to, to coach us. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting space. Um, Absolutely. And, and then in, in terms of what we're looking at with inner space, um, the, the, the main focus for us at the moment is looking at architecture and the, the built environment. Mm. Um, so we're using the platform to understand how spaces make people feel, but because it's VR, before construction even starts. Um, so you can begin testing out different scenarios. And I guess if you, if you think about it, architecture can really shift your emotions, right? As a space can make you feel joyous or excited or, or enthralled, but there's, there's quite a lot of financial investment that has to happen. It's a risk, right? So if people are able to de-risk those, those big projects by understanding ahead of time, how a space is going to make people feel, um, I think there's a lot of lot of value in that. Yeah, so with being able to apply it to the digital twins, especially in real estate and construction, being able to um, gather all that important data before people make very costly decisions just is so important. And you can see that it would probably be preventative in a way too of people going down the wrong road and um, only to discover later on that people don't feel comfortable in a specific space. Um, that's a great yeah, exactly. application. Yeah, and so then... I, I guess there are two sides. So, sorry. Um, okay. I guess there are two sides to that, that digital twin piece. One is the um, the kind of customer satisfaction or the, or the brand type consideration. And the other is, is this, this space or this experience going to feel overwhelming? Is it going to be easy to use? Are, are people going to be comfortable operating it? Um, so yeah, two, two sides to, to that kind of predictive um, capability. Mm. And then another one that comes to mind is healthcare. So we're, you know, we know that healthcare is already being disrupted by XR technologies. Do you see this technology having applications in the medical field? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I think that's a, a, a really good question. Um, for me, with, with emotion analytics, I, I think there are, are kind of two main modes of use. Uh, the first, just like we were talking about with, um, with the architecture example, is all about helping to optimize something during that design process, so before something goes into construction or, or production. But the other is really about helping people to maintain this kind of desired emotional state. And when I think about how 
XR is being used in in a medical setting, for me there there are loads of use cases. But but things like uh, clinical mental health, so VR being used to help treat PTSD, um, and in those situations, it's really useful for a therapist to be able to to control an environment that that a patient is experiencing. And if we're able to to really quantify how that's making someone feel, you can finally calibrate those experiences for the, for the benefit of the the individual. Um, another another example might be picking up on on signs of depression. So I guess this is not sort of strictly. XR, um, but you can imagine if you're you're picking up some of those signals, should we start calibrating some of, uh, for example, online content, um, so that it reduces any negative effects that it might be having on people. So sometimes we we know that some of this stuff can be harmful. Should emotional analytics play a role in in preventing that harm? Um, I guess an, another one is uh, is things like VR reducing or replacing anesthetics during procedures. Um, so often you might use an experience to distract a patient or to kind of take their focus away from what might be a bit of an unpleasant procedure. Um, and again, if you can kind of understand where their where their heads at, how they feel, we can optimize the the effects coming out of there. Um, and I, I guess there's there's one other sort of main way I I see this applying to um, to medical settings is when you've got doctors or, or surgeons maybe they're doing remote surgery um, you you've got a an XR system that's providing them with additional information or guidance about what's going on and um, if we can understand whether they're becoming stressed, distracted, we can s start to adapt the levels of those information or the, the interface um, to keep them in the, the kind of state of flow that you would help, you would hope a, a surgeon was, was going to be in. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there's so many great opportunities there. And that, and that also, the ability, when you touched on a bit about, you know, PTSD or depression or something, you know, that is um, a bit of an evolution. You know, it's a bit of a journey to get from point A to point B. And to be able to mm -hmm. kind of use this technology to measure how someone is improving incrementally, I think could be really positive to both the, the therapist as well as the patient to have a way to measure something that we've never been able to measure before. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you, in the, the past, you would need to rely on the, the self-reporting of, of the patient or um, I, I guess the experience of the intuition of, of the therapist or, or the doctor, but these technologies now provide really a more objective way to start to quantify some of those cause and effect relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it also just makes me think too, going back to marketing for a bit, you know, we've, I've worked in agencies where we do campaigns through VR and, and some are very impactful and, um, and very serious. And then, you know, to be able to have an extra layer of analytics that 
can prove to your boss, to your brand, to your client that this was effective and that people um, had an emotional reaction to it and um, are more likely than to take action or something like that, um, I think is really going to be a game changer for the whole industry. Yeah, 100%. I, I would hope it's allows it gives people the opportunity to to actually create some of those, those brave ideas that maybe would have been shot down because they were too niche or too experimental and um and so using emotion analytics certainly during that design and authoring process as a way of validating those ideas hopefully it's going to lead to to more creativity and uh and, and more impactful experiences yeah, I hope so. So what um, what do you see the relationship between emotional analytics and XR being kind of in the immediate current landscape, the short term landscape? And then how do you see it in the long term? Do you think this is going to be something that eventually is integrated within headsets? Or, um, or will emotional analytics be something that we like opt in and opt out of like we do cookies? How do you see it going? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do think that we're going to see emotional analytics really interwoven with all kinds of areas of life. And um, of course, as as the adoption of XR technology increases, we'll, we'll see it there too. Um, in, in terms of headsets, um, specifically VR headsets, we're kind of already there. Mm. Um, alongside M-Tech, there are, there are other manufacturers releasing these devices. Um, I know recently there was one announced by HP, um, so so that's that's coming. Um, Wait, sorry, they they will have the motion analytics embedded inside of them. Well, I, I guess it depends about context, right? So, right. for me, I'm not sure that a new Oculus headset that could read my innermost feelings <laughs> is, is much of a selling point, right? Right. Um, but it, but in some situations, actually, it's going to be really useful, and and I kind of think that to a degree, some of this stuff is is going to be inevitable because the the benefits and the use cases are, are kind of too compelling for it not to be. Mm. Um, so in in your intro, you were, you touched on kind of traditional analytics, and and we saw the the boom in in measuring user engagement that 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 brought along and it kind of did change the way that we interacted with the web right for, for better or mm -hmm. worse um, but if if we compare this ability to really understand what someone's feeling to those quite crude metrics of uh, you know dwell time or bounce rate um, you know, this stuff is, is super powerful for for business models that are built on attention and engagement so I, I'd be amazed if we don't see this technology becoming more and more commonplace within um, within headsets and of course AR glasses as, as those form factors start to mature. Absolutely. Well, which kind of brings me to my next question. Um, you know, with new technologies, there's always a hurdle around privacy and security. And I've always been an advocate for not turning a blind eye to these potential risks of technologies. And I'm starting to think ahead when we have AR glasses that are our are, are personal everyday glasses, 
um, you know, there might not be as simple to kind of put them away during sensitive meetings or personal encounters. And we could find mm-hmm. ourselves vulnerable to sharing information, experiences with brands or with companies like Facebook that we don't want to be sharing with them. So, I mean, I know that this is still a couple of years away, perhaps, but, you know, what do we need to be aware of today when it comes to emotional analytics technology, when it comes to risks and, and what are the risks that we should be aware of for the future? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, this is, this is kind of a, a, a massive area. Um, <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> I know. I, it, it's a big question. Um, I, I guess it's, it's also not just, Emotional analytics—it's kind of true of, of XR in, in general. I, th- I think at some point we're going to need to give people some level of control over the, the digitization of, of their emotions. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, permission is—it's—it's um, it's an interesting one, right? Uh, I think people kind of ignore cookie notifications in general, right? They've become this, these annoying interruptions when you, you visit a website. Everyone um, except me. I always opt out of all the cookies every time I go. I must be so annoying for marketers. But that's, that's very diligent of you. <laughs> it is. It is. It's just, uh, it's part of being a futurist. <laughs> <laughs> but I... And, uh, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of people just sort of swipe that, that stuff away. Right? I'm and sure. They, they yeah. Really pay attention to the to the implications. But I don't know. I, my, my hunch is we're going to have to get used to this idea of sort of switching, switching between different modes of um, of like personal telemetry. So I, I mm. kind of imagine we have the, these three modes. So you have sort of fully private where none of this stuff is is shared to anyone at all i can imagine this this kind of analytics mode which is really a, a trade-off of, of convenience for for sharing some of this data with with third parties um so that you can you know leave the house without being bombarded by permission requests at every single thing that, that you glance at right um and then, then probably there's this kind of broadcast mode, right, where your emotions are, are shared with the people around you. And I think we, we kind of already do this in a way. We're, we're used to, like, modulating our behavior, how, how we behave at home or with friends or at work is, is different, right? Um, so it's, it's kind of often drivel, driven by, by social norms, I guess. And as this technology becomes more prevalent, how do you see it impacting the way games and experiences are designed and ultimately the impact on the user experience? I'd like to think it has, it's going to have a, 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 positive, on, a positive effect on the, the way we design. Um, so jumping back to that, that architecture example from earlier on, I, I think... Um, we're going to be able to, over time, with, with more and more data, get a, a much better understanding of the, the relationships of, of cause and effect between, um, between different things, assets, stimuli, characteristics, and, and how they, they make people feel. Um, so really, 
I can imagine designers having access to almost a, like a palette of uh, assets and, and recommendations that, that are backed up by the science and backed up by the, the data um, that are going to really help tailor um, experiences to, to different types of, of people and different audiences. And I'd like to think that that allows designers to focus more of their time on the, the kind of emotional journey that they want people to, to go on. Um, when I was at the, the Royal College of Art, I had this tutor called Brendan Walker. Um, he's often described as the world's only thrill engineer. And he, he now has a company hmm. that actually designs theme park rides. And I, I kind of really like this idea that as designers, we all become thrill engineers or, or emotion engineers. Um, and by using all of this experience that can be gained from emotional analytics, that it will help people really hone their craft in terms of engineering some of those different emotional outcomes. Um, and I, I guess to an extent, this is what designers and creatives have, have always been doing, you know, th empathizing with their viewers or players or whoever it might be, um, and kind of thinking about that emotional journey. But now this ability to test your ideas and assumptions, um, but also to, to kind of change the experience dynamically at runtime based on what your audience is actually feeling, I, I think it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of being able to kind of, if you're seeing that engagement's going down to kind of be able to change that in real time, um, I think that that is really impactful. Yeah, definitely. So finally, my last question, what is your biggest fear for this technology? And then what is your biggest hope? Uh, another big question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I have, uh, there are sort of two, two categories in, in my mind around this stuff. Um, the first one is social and, and the other one is more cultural. Um, on the, the social side, I think obviously my biggest fear is that we end up in a place where emotion tracking is mandatory and we have to broadcast our emotions all of the time. Um, and that we end up with this kind of Orwellian thought police situation, right? Which I, I don't mm -hmm. think is, is going to happen, but you know, there's a scenario where that, that plays out. Um, on the, the flip side, you know, thinking about some of those use cases around driver safety or surgery and mental health, I, I would like to, to hope that this technology leads to improved outcomes for, for people's lives. Um, e even just their, their kind of daily lived experience at, at work. Um, we all know how frustrating technology can be when the UX is, is off, right? Um, and as a, an interaction designer, I'd love to to see the the dream come to life, I, I guess, of of this sort of helpful, assistive technology that sits politely in the background, out of the way, but then mm. comes in and, and intervenes when we need it to. Um, yeah. So that's sort of decluttering interfaces or acting as a a companion or a life coach or a, a collaborator. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely hope that's where where we're headed. Oh, yeah, um, I love that. That's a great vision for the future. Yeah, technology is, you know, a spirit animal. <laughs> um, on 
on the the cultural side I, I guess we sort of touched on it a, a little bit already but um my hope is that we have this, this kind of better toolkit for, for crafting um, emotional responses. But the the flip side to that, I guess, is a concern that creative output starts to become a little bit sanitized. Um, so if, if people are aiming for consistency of um, emotional response all the time, are we going to end up kind of designing or creating for the, the lowest common denominator. Um, so, for example, you know, Netflix has these extremely sophisticated recommendation algorithms um, and they have great processes for using data to, to optimize scripts and, and shows, but that doesn't necessarily mean you get a, a, a bigger selection of, of better content. Um, and I, I guess also this idea that if we're, we're optimizing for a million audiences of one, do we start to lose this idea of a kind of shared experience? Um, that everyone has their, their slightly different personal take on the world. Um, yeah, and, and so it, we, we sort of lose that, that ability to, to all see the same thing. Mm. Yes, I agree with you on that one. Um, and it's definitely something that we should be thinking about now, um, you know, at this stage of the development of the future of the metaverse. You know, we definitely want to create something that doesn't splinter our ourselves, our community, our versions of reality even more. You know, this mm -hmm. hopefully is going to be an agent for good. <laughs> and I think that's important yeah. to for us to stay focused on and, and keep in mind. And also, you know, just have an idea of where it could go wrong, you know, and how and how not to go in that direction. So very great. Thank you exactly. so much. Um, and finally, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Uh, I, I guess probably the, the the best way is through our website, which is parallel.systems. Um, for Mtech Labs, uh, their website is at mtech. That's e m t e q labs dot com. Great. Thank you so much, Matthew. And thank you all so much for listening this month. I um, really appreciate it. And I look forward to being back with you next month. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>